So do you ever feel like uh, we're going to hell in a handbasket? Do you ever feel like this world is just absolutely falling apart? This country is just falling apart? That everything is messed up? You might ask, while you're looking at this and, and wondering these things, you might ask, where is God in the midst of this train wreck? Why does it seem like the wicked succeed? Does it seem to you like God has maybe forgotten us? Maybe it seems like God has turned his back. Has God turned his back? Well, that's what we're going to study today as we jump into Summer in the Psalms. Last week we finished Colossians, our study by him and for him. Now we're jumping into Summer in the Psalms. So just throughout the summer we pick a psalm, we read through it. One of the reasons why I like this is people are hit and miss during the summer. Uh, you know, during the regular school year, we, I feel like we can study through a letter, and each week we build up this summer. Uh, the Psalms don't necessarily build on each other, so we can kind of be a little bit more random. You can miss a little bit here and there, but we're up to Psalm 107. Last year, we finished with Psalm 106, which is the end of book four. If you didn't know, Psalm is actually, the Psalms are broken into five books, Psalm 107 begins the fifth book, so we'll jump into Psalm 107. This psalm is broken into five different parts. It has the introduction, which is a call to thanksgiving and a challenge to give testimony to his goodness. Then we've got four different examples of how God has redeemed, how God is good. And then there, are, there is a call to uh, just other more singular examples of how good he is. And then we've got the conclusion God is interactive with humanity, thus turn towards him. So to fully understand this psalm, I think it's helpful that we bring some historical context into it. This psalm was written after the exile period. So if you remember the history of Israel, we'll just, we won't get into the whole history, but we'll start with uh, the exodus from Egypt. If you remember the exodus from Egypt, God leads Israel as a nation out of Egypt and during this time, he creates what's or he gives them what's called a, a bilateral covenant. So God, throughout the Old Testament, has a couple of unilateral covenants. God tells someone, "I'm going to do this thing, whether you do anything or not. I'm going to make this thing happen." He makes that covenant with Abraham and starts off the nation of Israel. That was a unilateral covenant with Moses and the Israelites, specifically in Deuteronomy. He creates what's called a bilateral covenant. And in a bilateral covenant, it's a bunch of if-then statements. So these if-then statements in Deuteronomy basically goes like this. I'll sum it up with, if you are faithful to God, if Israel remains faithful to God, then he will bless them. But if they are unfaithful to God and worship other gods, then he will raise up another nation to conquer them and take them captive. And if in their captivity... They cry out to God, then he will bring them back to the promised land. So there's a whole lot more if-then statements than that, but that's basically it. It's if Israel behaves this way, then God will react this way. If they do this, then God will do that. Those are the if-then statements of the bilateral covenant. We are no longer in a bilateral co covenant. We were, I was no longer in the covenant anyways because I wasn't an Israelite. But all that to say, that was the bilateral covenant that he had with them. So... 
They go through their history. They sin and rebel against God in such a way that he raises up Babylon, brings them out into captivity. This psalm was written after the end of the captivity. When they begin to restore Israel. So, let's start off. Typically, we read through the whole verse and then come back and like dive in, but this one's long enough. We're just going to break it apart right away. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. So the first, the introduction section is, is a call. It's a call to give thanks and to confess God. So it begins with, oh, give thanks for, to the Lord. This word thanks means to give gratitude or to uh, appreciate what someone has done for you. So give thanks, give gratitude, show appreciation for what God has done to you. And the next line gives us why we should give thanks, why we should give appreciation or gratitude to God. And it's simply because, for he is good. The rest of the psalm will unpack this phrase, for he is good. And it begins with, his steadfast love endures forever. So why is he good? Because his steadfast love endures forever. The word for love here, the Hebrew word is hasid. It's the Greek equivalent would be agape. We cover that quite a bit. And it's an unfailing, do what is right for the other, no matter what type of love. In America, we get kind of confused with this idea of love. We think love is simply an affection or an emotion showed towards someone. And that's not what this means. I believe that, that this type of love can grow in affection. It can grow in emotion. But that's not necessarily what this is. So when we use the word love, we use it in all kinds of ways. We love food. We love relaxation. We love the fact that the Nuggets just won the NBA Finals. Well, at least I do. And I love my wife. Now, hopefully my love for the, my wife isn't all those other types of love, right? So we have this really generic term for love that just doesn't quite make sense. That's not what this is. This isn't just a deep affection. It's to do what is right, no matter the cost, for the other. So that's the type of love God has for us. It will endure forever. It will not stop. It cannot be stopped. God has an unfailing love for you. And he's going to do what is right for you, no matter what. And that is the reason to give thanks. So next, the psalmist will give us a challenge to give testimony to God's goodness. So he explains that God is good. Now he's challenging the congregation or the people listening to speak about God's love, to give testimony to God's love, to share with one another about God's love, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. His love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. This word redeemed, it literally meant those purchased back from slavery. So if someone was in slavery, if someone was enslaved, and someone else came and they purchased them and bought them out of their slavery, they were redeemed. Later on, it came to mean rescued. So it started off with this, this idea that you had been redeemed from slavery, 
And then it just started to mean rescued. Rescued from all sorts of things. Here it is, rescued from trouble. Let those who have been rescued, redeemed, purchased from slavery, and from all sorts of trouble say so. This idea of say so is the the idea of confession. You're not just supposed to be thankful for it, but to confess it. To give testimony to it. To share about what God has done with those who don't know what He has done. So whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. So this redemption from trouble, he doesn't get specific on it, but the examples the psalmist will use will be specific to the exile period. But we could just as easily use examples as well, or find examples in our own life as well, of how God has redeemed us. Sometimes I hear people say that they don't like testimonies because they think they are man-focused. And they say something along the lines of, we hear about how you sinned, and now you're all good, and it's all about you. And I think that idea couldn't be more off. And I think the psalmist would agree with me. We share testimonies not to highlight my life, but we share testimonies because they tell of how God has changed us, how God has redeemed us, how God has saved us. So testimonies use our life to show God's goodness, and they are encouraging to others. Because when I share about how God has changed me, it can, it can encourage you to realize that God can change you as well. So when I share my testimony, and I... I often give it really short that I was a selfish jerk. I thought only of myself. I had some pain in my life that I didn't know how to deal with, and so the only way I really dealt with it was by numbing it and covering up with other things. But the problem is, the more I numbed my pain, the more actually I brought pain onto myself. Everything I did to numb my pain actually created more problems in my life. But God rescued me from my own self-destructive ways and began to heal my heart. Not just cover up the pain, but actually heal the pain. And when we share about how God has changed us, it lets others know that He can change them as well. They no longer have to be slaves to their sin. They no longer have to be slaves to their own self-destructive habits. We are, I like to use the term, trophies of God's grace. Now, what is a trophy? A trophy is just a symbol of a great achievement, right? A gold medal in and of itself is worthless. But what does a gold medal reveal? It reveals that this person has had a great achievement, maybe one of the best athletes ever. That's what a trophy does. So me calling myself a trophy of God's grace doesn't highlight me at all. It simply reveals how great God is. Because he took a messed up sinner and he started transforming him to become less of a selfish jerk. 
So we are called to share how God has redeemed us. Part of that is sharing how we were messed up. Another part of it is sharing how he has changed us. So then he gets into the examples. Now, I think it's important, once again, to remind ourselves that this is, these examples come from the exile period. So this was written in the post-exile period, but he's writing back. He's looking back into the exile period. So the first example, some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. So this section has some who, instead of being carried off to Babylon, escaped. But then found themselves wandering in the desert. The term wander here in the Hebrew means they left the path and now they are aimlessly wandering about. They don't actually have a path anymore. Now they're looking for a place to live, but they could not find a place. I think it's important to remember, Israel brought this upon themselves. When they became a nation, they made that covenant with God. The if-then covenants, they broke, the, they broke all of the faithfulness they agreed to and turned their back on God. So God brought Babylon to Israel to fulfill the part of the covenant that said, then I will raise up a nation to conquer you and take you into captivity. So these people tried to escape the consequences of their sin. And they were wandering in the desert, not because they were trying to escape a famine, not because they left for a better city, not because there was a job opportunity somewhere else, but because they had sinned against God. They had turned from Him and were now wandering in the desert, hungry, thirsty, distressed. Throughout the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah keeps insisting that God will hand Israel over to Babylon. And that since this is God's judgment, the Israelites should not fight it. Those that fight it or try to run from it will actually end up worse than those who go with God's plan. In fact, he lets them know very clearly that if you just go with Nebuchadnezzar back to Babylon, God's going to take care of you in Babylon. But if you fight against him, you're going to have it worse. So these people that tried to escape God's judgment, it ended up worse for them. They wander around aimlessly off the path. And then they cry out to God. So after rebelling against him, worshiping other gods, which, by the way, when when they talk about worshiping other gods... It consisted of temple prostitution and sacrificing babies. It's not like they just kind of quit on God. Like they were just neutral in their life. They were in active rebellion against him and against his creation. I think that's a good principle for us to hold on to really quickly, is when it comes to God, nobody is neutral. You are either following God actively pursuing and submitting to him, or you are in rebellion against God. 
Now, some are slower in their rebellion. Some don't have quite as clear rebellion. But if you are not submitting to God, you are in rebellion to God. But once they cry out, what does he do? He leads them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. So they were wandering around without a path. God didn't just give them a new path. He gives them the best path they can take. In those days, traveling was treacherous. An extra mile could spell death. So not only does God give them a a path, but the path is the best path. The path that would actually give them life. Throughout Proverbs, we are taught there are two paths. The path of the righteous, which leads to life, and the path of the wicked that leads to death. This is the path of rebellion against God. The path of life is the path that God gives us. So they had rejected God and were on a path towards death, wandering aimlessly. But the moment they cry out, he gives them a path back toward life. You are never too far gone to be saved by God. He can always redeem you, just as he did this group. So then what's the appropriate action? Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, for he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. So what's the appropriate action? It comes back to this idea of gratitude and confession. That they would thank him for his steadfast love, that he's ready to do what they, what is best for them, I should say. And for his wondrous works that he would redeem them. They were wandering around aimlessly, hungry, and thirsty, they were looking for something to satisfy and yet could find nothing. It's kind of like, have you ever been on a long hike or something that just made you incredibly thirsty and somebody offered you a soda? And you were so thirsty you drank that soda only to find that you were still even more thirsty than you had been in the past because soda doesn't satisfy, does it? But God satisfies, and he gave them that which would satisfy them. We do this so often in our life. We search for things that we think will satisfy us outside of God. That we will finally get that thing that satisfies, and when we get it, it doesn't truly satisfy. And we begin the search all over again. But once they cried out to God, he gave them what truly satisfied. Now he gives us another group from the exile period. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners afflicted and in irons. For they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. So this next group of exiles uh, from the exile period were captives. 
Now, nobody really knows where they were captives at, but because Jeremiah, in Jeremiah, God promises those who go with Babylon willingly will get special treatment, I don't think that he's referring to those in Babylon. I think this is actually a reference to those who go back to Egypt. There was a group in Jeremiah that wanted to go back to Egypt, and Jeremiah gives them a strict warning, if you go back to Egypt, if you trust in Egypt, it's actually going to be worse for you. We also see from the Exodus on, choosing Egypt represented not trusting in God. In Deuteronomy, there's all kinds of warnings. Do not go back to Egypt. Don't trust in Egypt. Don't go back to Egypt. Because from the moment they had left Egypt, there were so many Israelites that thought they should just go back to Egypt. There would be some sort of safety and security. At least we knew what we had in Egypt. And so Egypt became this place that they thought they could trust, that it became a place that they thought was full of safety, but really what it meant was that they were trusting in humanity or trusting in humans rather than trusting in God. That's what Egypt begins to represent. So when Syria was coming down to wage war, the question at hand was, will you trust in God or will you trust in Egypt? So now in the exile period, we see the same question. Will you go back to Egypt? Will you trust in Egypt? Will you trust in man? Or will you trust in God? And I think we are tempted with a similar temptation. Will you trust in the things of this world? Or will you trust in God? Will you trust in a political group? Or will you trust in God? Will you trust in your bank account? In your investments? Or will you trust in God? That is the question before all of us. So those that went to Egypt were once again enslaved by Egypt and held captive. They sat in darkness and in the shadow of death They were prisoners, and they were afflicted, and then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death, and burst their bonds apart. So those who were wondering aimlessly were on the brink of starvation, and they found that only God can satisfy These are prisoners and find that only God can break their chains. Only God can deliver them from the darkness and the shadow of death. And what is the appropriate response? Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man. For He shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. So once again, we see this theme of gratitude and confession. He took this group that disobeyed and as a result were in chains. Upon repentance, He freed them from their chains. There is no sin that has taken you too far from God. There is no chain that is too solid for God to break. For this group, it was a physical chain, but for you, maybe it's slavery to a thing or to an idea. 
Maybe for you, it's slavery to an action or a habit that you just can't kick. You've tried, but every time you run away, it grabs you and pulls you back. Today is the day to call out to God. Today is the day to cry out for His help. He can free you from the shackles of addiction. The next group were no better, picking up in verse 17. Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities, suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. So once again, we can't be sure what exactly is going on with this group, but in the context of the different groups and with the exile period, we can say that they didn't trust God. They did not submit to the Babylonians. They did not let the Babylonians take them out for captivity. And now, as a result of their rebellion against God, they have become sick. I think it's important that we give a disclaimer here. Not all sickness is a result of rebellion. Not all sickness is a result of sin. It's important to remember that Israel at this time was under the Mosaic Covenant with all the ifs and thens of that covenant. God was working with them in a unique way. Just because you are sick does not mean you or someone in your lineage has sinned against God and is judging you for it. I think it's important to note because in their rebellion they became sick and when they're on the brink of death, what happens? Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. So they rebel. This rebellion causes them to get sick, bringing them to the brink of death. Upon repentance and crying out to God, God heals them. Not everyone gets sick from rebellion, and not everyone gets healed. If God did not heal you or someone you love, it is not because God doesn't love you. I go back to this was a special circumstance. There are times today that I think God does heal people. We hear stories of it. There are some people in this room that have said, hey, I was supposed to die. The doctors had no clue, or I should say, the doctor said I was terminal, Set your things in order. Three months, you'll be dead. And they're still alive. And the doctors are baffled. But they're still alive. So God can and still does heal some people. But he doesn't heal all of us. And I can't answer why God doesn't heal all of us. I wish I could, but I can't. What I can tell you, if you are struggling with loss, if you are struggling with grief for someone that wasn't healed, we cannot know the whys. But we can be comforted by God in the midst of the pain. I know the pain of grief. I know what it means to ask God, why God, why? And then sit in silence, with no response. I 
But I also know the comfort of coming to the point of saying to myself, I don't understand why, but I will trust you anyway. I don't understand why, but I know that you can use it for your own glory. I don't understand why, but I know there's something bigger than me here, God. And I know that I can trust you even in the midst of pain and grief. So there's a special circumstance where they rebelled against God in their rebellion, and because of their rebellion, they become sick. They're on the brink of death. They cry out to God. And God, because of the special circumstances, heals them. And what is the appropriate response? Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. And let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. Once again, we have this theme of gratitude and confession. Having a heart that appreciates what God has done and confessing and declaring what he has done to others. It's interesting, this is the group where he says, and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. That not only should you be telling others and have an appreciation for God, but to do it with joy. Joy doesn't always mean happiness. That's another word that we get confused. One of the best definitions I've heard of joy is quiet contentment. Quiet contentment. And once again, I go back to the time when I was going through intense grief, and I shook my fist at God, and I asked God why. And then I finally came to the place where I was no longer asking God why, where I could just say, God, I don't understand why, but I'm going to trust you anyways. And in that moment of saying, I'm just going to trust you anyways, there was a moment of quiet contentment. Even in the midst of my pain, I could be content with what I had in life and what God has given me, how God has redeemed me. And I wouldn't say, I wouldn't call myself happy at that moment, but I could have a quiet contentment in that moment. And then we find the next group. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, His wondrous works in the deep, for He commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' ends. I love the description that the psalmist gives us here. This group is like Jonah. They tried to escape God's judgment, right? They tried to escape the Babylonians by running away. But they quickly learned you cannot run from God. That He controls the ocean. There's no place too far to run. There's nowhere you can hide. God is everywhere. The world was created by Him. The world was created for Him. And in Him all things exist. You cannot run from God. And this group quickly learns that He controls the oceans. 
Now, I've never been in big waves, but I've looked at big waves from a distance. And I was in Hawaii once, and I saw uh, they were described as 30-foot Hawaiian, which I'm not entirely sure what Hawaiian means, but I know that there's a different type of measurement. But they were huge, and they were crashing up against the beach and is actually transforming the beach right there in front of our eyes. It looked like a river as it rushed down. It was incredibly powerful, and I was in awe of the ocean that day. I couldn't imagine being in those waves. Because I've been in other waves, smaller waves, six-foot waves maybe. That might be a bit of an exaggeration. They felt like six foot. They were probably only like three. But I felt them pick me up and slam me back down. Have you ever felt that power of the ocean? These sailors thought they could run from God. And that God creates a storm that picks up their entire boats, lifts them up, and then brings them down to the depths. Their boats were shaking with so much force. They were like drunken men, rocking back and forth. They couldn't find their feet at all. And the, this happens for so long that they look like drunk men and they are at their wits' end. They have, they have come to the end of themse themselves. And so then, what do they do? Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and He brought them to their desired haven. So once again, we see a group in rebellion against God, running from God, and it brings them to the brink of death, it brings them to the end of themselves. And what do they do? They cry out, and he saves them. He delivers them from their self-caused distress. So once again, what is the appropriate response? Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. So what's, what's the appropriate response? Gratitude and confession. Confessing who God is to others. Here the emphasis moves from uh, the thanksgiving part to the confession part. The term congregation here really means just simply a group of people. The second part, the elders, would meet at the city gate. So they are called to confess to the whole group of people that are at the city gate where the people would be doing business, where the elders are at. Essentially what he's saying is, go to the city gate and tell everyone who will listen what God did for you. Go tell about how great God is. Sometimes when we talk about God to others. We get caught up in culture wars. We look around and we see all the things that are going wrong and we see the sins that people are trapped in and we think what we need to do is convince them of how horrible they are. Instead of talking to them about how great God is. 
even if we convince them of how horrible they are, what good does that do if God isn't so great? I think sometimes, instead of focusing in on all of the culture around us, instead of engaging in cultural battles, what we really need to do is switch our focus to how truly amazing God is. To how absolutely great God is. And part of the way I do that is by explaining what He has done for me. How I was a train wreck. But He redeemed me anyways, even in the midst of my rebellion. So the next section gives several examples of how God can redeem the world. It begins with, He turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground, fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. I think it's interesting here why the rivers turn into a desert and why the fruitful land turns into a salty waste. It's because of the evil of the inhabitants. Essentially, what the psalmist is saying is that by our rebellion, we have brought affliction upon ourselves. But what we wreck, what we destroy in a flaming hot dumpster fire, he can turn into beautiful flowers. He can change those ashes into roses. And it goes on to describe how he does, or more examples of how he does that. He turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water. And there he lets the hungry dwell. And they establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing, they multiply greatly. And he does not let their livestock diminish. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes. He makes them wander in trackless wastes, but he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. So we see these great things that he can do And what is the conclusion of all of this redemption? Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let him consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Before the exile, the prophets warned the people. But every warning came with a promise of redemption. The exiles at this point might be wondering if God would live up to His promise. Would you really restore Israel, God? This psalm was written to encourage the people to think about how God has already begun to fulfill His promise. And He did it with those who were in outright rebellion to Him. It is easy for us to feel like those exiles. We do the same thing. We look around and we think, really God? I see all the pain and I see all the suffering and it seems as if the bad guys win all the time. God, have you just forgotten about us? Have you turned your back on us? 
The psalm encourages us. Look around. Look at the good things God has already done. Look at the people He has already redeemed. Look at the hearts and the lives He's already changed. See that He is already beginning to fulfill His promise. And that shows us that we can trust that He will fulfill it fully when the appropriate time comes. Dear Lord, we thank You so much for Your Word. We thank You for the transformed lives, for the trophies of grace that we see all around us, for those people that were hot dumpster fires and then they came to know You, and they've been changed. And it reflects Your glory, how absolutely marvelous You are. And though we don't know all the answers and we can't give all the answers to why this grief or why that grief, we know that You have started the process of redemption in this world. And we know that in the end, we can trust You. And we pray that You would help us to trust You all the more. In Your name we pray. Amen.